welcome to High Action. I'm Perry Smith. I'm Will Brom. I'm John Story. Together, we're the New West Guitar Group. On today's episode, we're featuring guitarist Sean McGowan. A special thanks to our Patreon members and our sponsors who make this podcast possible. For more information on High Action and how you can get involved, please visit www.newwestguitar.com slash highaction. It's good to see both of you guys. Here we are, episode number 30 of the High Action Podcast with Mr. Sean McGowan. And Will, I got to ask you, man, it looks like you're on your way to a gig today. I am on my way to a gig. I'm so excited. This is like the first, first of all, this is definitely the first time I've worn a long sleeve collared shirt on high action period <laughs> out of all out of all the interviews we've done and uh yeah i have a solo guitar gig this afternoon right after this so oh, man you know let's get more solo gigs rolling yeah i mean hey we'll see what happens i mean we all got to be safe of course i'm getting vaccine shot number 2 sunday which is absolutely crazy to think and then headed to oregon in 2 weeks to see my dad i haven't seen him since 2019 i'm pretty excited about that um, but you know, it's all this tra- all this thought of traveling again and stuff. We'll see how the year pans out. But you know, one area of the country, you guys, that we had New West gigs booked before the pandemic, and it got canceled, was way out in Uray, Colorado. And today's guest, Sean McGowan, hails from Denver. Um, you know, Perry, we've got some great memories up there, especially in Carbondale. Uh, you want to share with the listeners a little bit about Steve's guitars and an instrument that you found there that you really dug. Yes, um, that's true. The recording king at Steve's Guitars. Yeah. Um, but yeah, real, Sean lives in Denver, but is originally from, what is it, Maine, yeah. I think? Or mm-hmm. somewhere on the East Coast. Yeah, one of the greatest guitar players uh, you're going to hear. I mean, yeah, this guy is just burning. Um, and yeah, the listeners will get a chance to check that out uh, through this really interesting episode with Sean. He's a, a, like I said, really burning guitar player, really smart guy. And he lives in a cool place. He lives in Colorado, lives in Denver. And we've had a lot of fun in that state. Um, And Carbondale, which is the support town for Aspen, where we've played a number of times at a little spot called Steve's Guitars. It's a funky little town. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've had some really cool shows there, you know, kind of traveling through to other different places. And yeah, this guy who is an SC alum who, who runs that guitar shop has a bunch of old beater guitars up there. And one of them is this old acoustic recording king Mm -hmm. that I kind of fell in love with one weekend. But um, let's just put it this way in Colorado. The action is high. (laughs) Not just talking about the guitar, you know? Yeah, and you know, Will, you uh, especially love Uray because the people that we love staying with up there have have some cats and uh, stuff. Remember that? Tonka. Tonka. Tonka, this beautiful... (laughs) fuzzy gray cat oh man so many good memories in your ray um it goes without saying i mean colorado hanging in colorado right now doesn't seem like the worst idea by any stretch um i'm really excited though to have sean sean's huge massive influence amazing player his solo playing like it lights me up when i listen to yeah. it i just want to hit the shed so hard and he's been really gracious he's he sent me a lot of his pdf um his workbook PDFs and I've shedded them and I got a lot, got a lot more hours to clock on them. <laughs> yeah, he's bad. Yeah, he's fantastic solo guitarist. Uh, I hope our listeners, if you haven't checked out Sean's uh, recordings, are going to get a chance after today's episode to, to go listen um, because yeah, it's 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 admirable how much effort and time he's put into solo jazz guitar playing. Um, it's really a major, major commitment. I mean, playing jazz guitar alone is a major commitment, and then on top of it, playing solo is a commitment. His, and Sean is um, one of the nicest guys when you see him at guitar festivals. He, uh, he knows everybody. He, he's um, really the model of like what a great guitar educator, somebody who's aware of the scene, aware of stuff, and... Um, but also, you know, really deeply rooted in the tradition. 
Uh, so, and before we pass it on to the episode, again, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for subscribing for first here on Spotify or Apple podcasts or your chosen podcast provider. Um, but even more so we're in a bit of a spring pledge drive right now to gain a few more people over on our Patreon page. So for as little as a buck, you can become one of our VIP members to which you get access to some conversations that the New West Guitar Group is having each week, and also get to toss us some tidbits, suggestions of players, questions for our guests that we have on High Action. Um, If you join us over there and become a patron of the New West Guitar Group and the High Action Podcast. So head over to Patreon slash New West Guitar Group, and you can find our High Action New West Guitar page. You can also find it through our website. John, I just thought of a good name for our listeners. High Actionites. <laughs> uh, let's, let's go with it. Yeah. High Actionites. We appreciate you guys for joining us on Patreon. And the High Actionites are going to get access. If you sign up at 10 bucks or 25 bucks a month, you'll get on our guest list. It shows when we have live gigs again. You're going to get custom arrangements from us, solo guitar or group arrangements. We're going to send you guys some of our music. So the High Actionites get a lot of perks. And even access to some cool swag like coffee mugs and T-shirts. So high actionites. I like it, Perry. No, We're going it goes, with it. It goes a few different ways. A, a high actionite has a lot of nights with high action. You know? Oh, so. high action night. <laughs> yes. Hey. This is really a window into what we talk about when we used to be on the road. This is the kind of dialogue that we are most accustomed <laughs> yeah. to. Now we know episode 30 officially goes in the comedy podcast chart this week. That's great. You know, we're, we're going to just toss this over there. I mean, we're doing well on the music interview charts. Yeah, okay. With that kind of humor, we're going to be skyrocketing on the comedy ones before you know it. So without further comedy, without further ado, let's get on it with episode 30, Sean McGowan, High Action. Thanks for joining us on on High Action, man. We so appreciate it. It's an honor because players like you, Sean, you're amongst some of our favorite guitar players on the scene today. And this has been an opportunity for the New West Guitar Group to connect with all of you guys. But also, I feel like we get a lesson every week from everybody, you know, because we all take away something from each of you guys. I'm so we've got a lot of questions to ask you today, too, Sean. So, I mean, we're honored that you would join us. Thanks so much for asking me. And it's definitely mutual. I love all of, you know, your playing collectively and individually. And we've known each other for so many years now. It's been really great to follow your trajectories and hear you. And um, yeah, it's it's also a lesson um, for me to listen to all of these. Yeah, man. Well, and you know, to start off with how we met, uh, we met about 2005. Was that when you began USC again? I was trying to remember if it was 05 or 04. 04. Yeah, that's when we moved there. I moved to Altadena and um, started that fall semester, yeah. Prior to that, just to give the listeners a little bit more of your background, so you grew up in Maine, and again, where did you, uh, I was trying to find, and I couldn't, I couldn't find it, where again did you do your, your undergrad? I think I knew where you did your undergrad. I just want to make sure um, where you did your schooling before USC. <laughs> it was a long, arduous journey for me, mostly because I was kind of putting myself through school, you know, as a musician uh, and various jobs I worked over the years. So I actually did, I spent time at three different schools um, right after high school. I went to University of Miami for a year, and then a few years later, I went to uh, New England Conservatory in Boston, lived in Boston for a little while. And then finally, um, I ended up going to Berkeley when I was older, um, and just because at that point, uh, I just really wanted to get the degree, um, which is the opposite. You know, a lot of times people will go to school and get the experience and play, and then they'll leave, and they, and you know, but my intention was actually to graduate <laughs> and to, and to get, um, you know, get a degree because at that at that point in my life, I knew that I wanted to teach. Um, but it was also an incredible experience. So anyway, I, I ended up finishing. I basically had to start over, um, but I finished my undergrad at, at Berkeley. And then I did my master's degree a few years later at University of the Arts in Philly. And then right after that, we moved to L.A. Wow, it's such a background. Did you do all of that consecutively or did you take some time between your undergrad and your master's? 
a lot of time. So by the time I went back to Berkeley, I was already 26. And um, so, you know, I was older than, uh, you know, the first semester students, but it was really great because um, Berkeley has a system, I, I think that they still have it, but they did back then where they kind of, everybody auditions and they're assigned a number rating. And that number rating makes you eligible to take certain high-level classes and play in high-level ensembles and things like that. And so my numbers were high and I was older and, and I ended up being in classes generally speaking with people my age um, because what I found at w one of the wonderful things about Berkeley is it has one of the highest if not the highest international student population of any school in America so there are tons of students from Europe and Latin America and, and Asia and um, quite often I found myself in classes with Europeans for example who maybe were their parents forced them to get a degree in engineering or something like that and they just knew that their heart their passion was really about studying music. And, and that's very common. A lot of Europeans will come over after they have a four-year degree in something else, and they'll come over to America and study at Berkeley, for example. So imagine around this time, too, because you're a great player, and you're really kind of leading the pack there amongst the jazz guitarists at Berkeley, which we know Berkeley has like 1,500 guitar majors, and a fraction of them are really jazz guys, of course. But uh, what kind of gigging were you doing around Boston at the time? Were you just doing some casual work here and there, or were you putting on some shows and some playing in different bands and stuff? Yeah, different things, you know, um, definitely casuals, you know, that in Boston, they call them GB gigs, general business gigs. So I did a lot of that um, with various people, which was great because, you know, when you're in a place like Boston, all of the musicians are great. So if you're on a, a casual, everybody is playing at a high level. Um, so it's a lot of fun. And um, I was also, because of the proximity, I was also going back to Maine a lot. I mean, Maine was just a quick two-hour drive. Um, so I was also playing a lot of gigs with my own groups and, and with Andrea. Actually, we, we played duo for quite a bit. In fact, we had a... We played two nights a week every week at this club in Portland. Um, that was really great. So yeah, trying to do a lot of different things. Um, it was it was crazy. I mean, I didn't sleep. A lot of driving and a lot of playing. <laughs> yeah, and that, that northeast corridor right there, you know, getting up and down, especially from Boston, because you're already north to be able to get up to Maine and go play up there. I'm also trying to think, so was John Abercrombie teaching at NEC at that time? Uh, I know Ben Monder also was there later on, and Gene Bertoncini, of course, too. Um, who, was, who was teaching at, well, at, when you went down to New England, when you went over to New England Conservatory. Um, yeah, at that time, it was Mick Goodrick. He was the guitar teacher there. Mm -hmm. And um, But, you know, interestingly, I um, I took lessons with Cecil McBee, who was a bass, a, a bass, an incredible bassist. And, um, you know, at that point, I didn't, I just, I just didn't, I, I wanted to have the perspective of different musicians. And, um so what I would do is I would have various friends who were drummers and I would just grab a drummer and my lesson was basically a trio mm -hmm. performance in a practice um, with Cecil. And it was wonderful. I mean, we would play all these tunes and then he would critique me and, and we'd talk about things. And I just kind of wanted to, at that point in my development and everything, I wanted to really get the perspective of, of somebody other than a guitarist. I yeah. didn't want to just be with a guitar player and, and play duo and all of that. I just really wanted to have the experience of, of you know, what I needed to get done from the perspective of another musician, especially a high-level musician in a rhythm section. And as it turned out, of course, I was a huge fan of Mick Goodricks, and I had his book, The Advancing Guitarist. I got that when I was 18, and I still love that book. And um, and years later, when I ended up going to Berkeley, I did study with him. Um, it was it was fantastic. Uh, you must have some great stories with Mick, because I've heard stories about students going in and him saying, like, okay, go ahead and practice the, the Bach you know, cello suite and bring that in next week and students coming in not really having it down and he would be like okay see you next week like he wouldn't <laughs> and just like he would just dismiss them instead of like doing the lesson um but and mr Goodcord, i mean i love that book too um did you find a lot of inspiration in his teaching style because um, i've met him a couple times he seemed like a super nice guy when i've met him at least mm -hmm. Yeah, he was he was very cool. He was always I mean, I've heard some harsh stories, too, but he was always very nice to me and, and hilarious. He's got a really funny sense of it. He's similar to Joe in, in this this, you know, this kind of raw East Coast humor, old school, tough love, but also this very much this kind of like guru, you know, spiritual monk type of character. Right. Um, he was really great. You know, he was funny. I remember I remember one time this doesn't have anything to do with guitar, but um, he was 
he was known for never having a car. For example, he would he would he never had a car in his life. I don't even know if he knows how to drive. Wow. And so the deal was in Boston: if if you wanted him on a gig, you had to go pick him up, and all of these things arranged for his travel. <laughs> and and so one day we were talking about that, and you know, I was like spending my life in the car. I had this old like 1980 Toyota Corolla or something. <laughs> And, and, and I just said, how can you possibly live without a car? And he just at me flatly goes, I don't understand how you can live with a car. And, you know, to tell me about all of the, you know, the, what a drag it was having a car. And right after that lesson, I went downstairs and my car had been stolen. <laughs> and no. 12 hours going to taking the train to Dorchester and going to the police station and eventually getting my car out and driving back to Maine, like at three in the morning. But um, oh, amazing. I thought, you know, he's right. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it makes sense because, like, the rig. I saw him at the at the um, regatta bar with Dominique Ede and Dave Holland trio, and that was that was a pretty intense show. Really beautiful. Dominique Ede, of course, a great vo vocalist from Boston who teaches at oh, NEC. Yeah, and mm -hmm. he was using the tiniest little teeny little polytone, and he had that that Klein guitar without the headstock. And mm -hmm. he walked in. I remember I was there early, and Regatta Bar lets you in early to kind of eat before and kind of get settled. And there's Dave Holland up there tuning and warming up, and my jaw was on the ground. I was like, I can't believe I'm sitting here watching Dave Holland warm up. I had just gotten off the plane from Portland, Oregon, to, to do my audition at NEC out of high school. And then, you know, like five minutes before the gig, in walks Mick, and he just puts his amp down, he plugs his guitar in, he goes like that, and then he looks at Dave's like, all right, well, you know, what do you think we're going to play tonight? And he was like, I don't know, I guess she's going to bring in some charts. And they brought in the charts, and it was, it, was so, it was so out of this world great, of course. But that makes sense. Yeah, you know. I think the best, um, in my opinion, the best um, way to experience mixed guitar playing uh, is actually in a solo or in a chamber group situation, you know, because that's when he really starts getting into that counterpoint thing. Mm -hmm. And there were all of these tapes going around at the time of him playing duo with Dominique, which is incredible. They would improvise these like Bach fugues and, and Mick would get two and three and four parts happening. I've never heard any guitar player do it. Uh, like like he could improvise in that in that style. Mm -hmm. um, it was like he was creating these little mini fugues. It was just amazing, stunning to to hear that kind of control um, harmonically and contrapuntally. And um, I also remember this one great gig. I saw him play duo in Watertown, just a little workshop kind of place with Wolfgang Muspiel. And uh, that was an incredible duo. And so I think that's the best. I've, I've never really heard Mick being captured like that on record. Um, you really have to experience him live. Yeah. I think that's similar with Joe. I mean, all the times I saw Joe play live, it's like, wow, this is really never captured on record. It's not the same as when you go to see him play live. Yeah, of course, their duo record, Rare Birds, is a really great album too have you checked yeah, that one that's out a, that yeah. is a cool record yeah and and they play very differently together than they do individually as solo guitarists um but this is yeah it's so cool hearing you interact with these guys you must have at this point kind of decided like that you wanted to sort of set up roots because you're from the east coast did you kind of think that you wanted to just do your career in boston between kind of this circuit of portland maine down to new york or or when was it that you decided that you wanted to get out to the west coast and maybe try say like with usc doing the because you started your your dma at usc right mm -hmm. right yeah it's well i think it just came down to um i couldn't make a living in maine quite honestly i mean it was just it was really hard and you know i mean we all know what what you make on a gig typically and you know, Maine is just a rough place. I mean, on one hand, I'm very thankful for the opportunities that I had, and there were a lot of great musicians that I was exposed to, particularly because it was relatively close to Boston and even New York. There were right. clubs in Portland, and lots of people would come up. And in fact, it was really great because I, w I was fortunate to see people at the kind of the early stages of their careers all through the 90s, and it was really awesome to see these people, you know, like Kurt Rosenwinkel and Ben Street. Ben Street's from Portland, so he would bring a lot of these guys up. Jim Black, um, Chris Speed, mm -hmm. you know, they would all come up and just and just play in these little dive bar in Portland. But the reality was is that it was very difficult to make the kind of living that I wanted to do. Um, and I had that, actually, that's what prompted me. After I finished um, Berkeley, um, I started teaching right away um, at University of Maine at Augusta, which had a jazz program. And I also taught at Bowdoin College in Maine, great liberal arts school. You know, I was adjunct faculty in both. I taught lessons and ensembles. But then I thought, you know, this is... 
it could be like this for the rest of my life. And, and it was, you guys know that adjunct faculty is, you know, they, you don't make any money as adjunct. And one semester you might have a bunch of students. Next semester you might have one or two students. You don't find out until the week before. It's very difficult to make a living under those circumstances. So that's what, at that point, I decided I, I really wanted to have a full-time position teaching and I needed to go to grad school to do that. Begrudgingly, I mean, I, I was really kind of opposed to it at first, but that was the reality check that I faced. So um, I went to um, move to Philadelphia first, and um, and then I got my master's degree down there, and then Andrea and I got married, and then we moved out to L.A. So it was just kind of a, a, a fortunate series of events, I think, that, that got us out to L.A. Right. Were you studying with Jimmy Bruno at University of the Arts? Was he the teacher there then? Or? Um my teacher there was a great guy who has since passed. His name is Tom Jacobetti. Um, he and Jimmy go way back. He was one of the great Philly guitar players and in, in Jersey, that whole scene. Tom was just such an amazing person. He was an amazing teacher. And at that point, I just really I wanted to learn about his teaching style and his methodologies. And just his philosophy about education was really great. He was also the best sight reader I've ever I've ever scene. I mean, I would go to theater. He was like the first call guy for years and years in Atlantic City and in Philly, and he would do all of the musicals there. Mm. And I would go to gigs with him just to watch him. He would double on all these instruments, and he could just read any anything, you know? Yeah. Um, so it was really inspiring to be around him. You know, a lot of times I just, I just want to be around people who um, do something different from what I do, uh, or just to have that perspective. But as soon as I met him, I knew that I wanted to study with him. So I was very fortunate to work with him. Yeah. And were you working extensively on your solo guitar work at this point? Cause when I met you, I remember hearing you do various recitals and performances at USC and being really struck by, of course, what a great solo guitarist you are. Um, and today we love to share with some of the listeners a couple of these recordings that you've done um, recently. Um, but was, you know, you're on the, the East Coast is so full of players. You're talking about some of the guys you played with in Boston and stuff. At what point were you sort of digging a little bit more into uh, solo guitar? Was it around this time? Actually, it was a lot. It was um, quite a bit earlier. Um, so I just, even going back to high school, um, I, I, in fact, even before high school, when I was a kid, I just, I'm thinking about this now. I just was exposed to a lot of great solo guitar records. Um, not even jazz records, but for example, my uncle had this record, the, the Leo Kotke record, the six and 12 string guitar. And I listened to John Williams and Segovia and Chet Atkins. And I just was fascinated in how, um, you know, the guitar could be orchestral. And I've always loved harmony. And when I was in high school, um, that that first Take Six record came out, and I got that, and I just absolutely fell in love with that. The first take, just their sense of harmony and, and counterpoint and colors and all of that. And um, about in high school, I also really loved the Wyndham Hill players at the time, Michael Hedges and, and Alex DeGrassi. I was listening to all of those guys who could make their guitars sound so colorful and so beautiful. It was like listening to this visceral soundtrack. And um, for me, the two jazz guitar players that really struck me, and I, I had their cassettes and I listened to them every night before going to bed, were the with Earl Clue's solo guitar record. Um, Earl Clue is just an unbelievable solo guitarist, and he's yeah. so great. Yeah. And uh, most people aren't aware of his solo playing, but he's amazing. And Tuck Andrus, of course, um, with Tuck and Patty. And so... That was in high school, and then I was fortunate when I was 19, I actually met Tuck, studied with him for a week at this this kind of camp workshop in upstate New York, and we really hit it off, and he liked what I was doing, and, and we became friends, and then the following year, um, he asked me to teach uh, at a place out in Aptos, California, it was called Jazz Camp. And he brought me in there to kind of, um, I'm sure, Perry, you, you probably know, you guys may know a lot of these people. It was really incredible. It was like, I think Madeline Eastman was directting it. And it was mostly Bay Area musicians at the time. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, John Santos was there and... and um, uh, you know, I mean, Mike Clark was there actually teaching. It was really incredible just being in this in this atmosphere in the middle of the Redwoods. Yeah. And uh, and I was kind of like Tuck's um, assistant teaching this guitar class. So he was really kind of my first teacher um, and and really, you know, and me really wanting to learn this style. And um, and he was a huge influence on me for many years musically um, and definitely philosophically and, and spiritually and all of those things. He has a great attitude towards life. Yeah. And I mean, how cool we play an instrument that 
stylistically, you're talking about Tuck Andrus, Alex Degrassi. I mean, we've even mentioned Mick Goodrick in this interview thus far. We, Joe DiOrio. You know, these are all fine solo. Earl Clue, really great solo guitar players, all stylistically playing such different kind of music. And I certainly mm. feel like coming from like rural Oregon. Um, that my influences of style aren't just in jazz, they're also in bluegrass and folk music. And it's fun how we get to kind of develop this sound because as a solo guitar player, you know, we really have permission to kind of go in any direction we really want to with, with the instrument, you know, because it's such a dynamic, mm. rhythmic instrument. You know, the rhythm is such a big part of it. It's one thing I love about your solo guitar playing is that you have really great grooves and things you do in the right hand. Um, for sure. And I'd, I'd actually love to spin something right now um, as a part of our interview here. This is from your album you released in 2015. It's all the music from My Fair Lady. And uh, this is uh, Get Me to the Church on Time. Uh, and so let's let's take a listen here to some really cool... I love this arrangement, man. I love how the stuff you're doing in the right hand to kind of create the effect of the multiple players here. So here, we, here it is with Get Me to the Church on Time. a great arrangement man and so, so that was released in 2015 and um since then too have you been you've been doing various things of course this year like your guitars and coffee series which has been great a lot of solo guitar too um have you been also working on other recordings other other videos of other solo guitar projects because is that your latest solo guitar release yeah, that was five years ago now. Um, I'm very excited. I just I just won a grant uh, from this great organization um, in Boulder through Boulder, um, the uh, Boulder County Arts Council, Pathways to Jazz. And this is actually a national grant. They they opened this up, so there were several other grant winners from New York. Um, some of you guys might know, um, but anyway, it's they they fund recordings um, specifically for jazz musicians, mm. first locally and now nationally. And uh, so I was able to um, win this grant to do a a, a new recording um, in 2021. And I think I'm going to do I'm going to try to uh, I'm going to do an ensemble recording and also another solo guitar recording because. Um, if I'm prepared, I can do a solo guitar, uh, solo guitar recording pretty quickly. Like I can, all of my records that I've done, I've done in like two days, mostly because I've only had the money to <laughs> budget for two days, you know? Um, but if I'm prepared, I can go in there and kind of bang that out. But what I'm really looking forward to, which will be new for me is writing all original music for an ensemble. And I have a, a bunch of wonderful musicians here in the Denver uh, Boulder area that I'm looking forward to working with. And so this will be my first group project. So that's what I'm doing um, in 2020. 
2021 and we'll see what happens with, you know, COVID-19 and everything and, 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 you know, how we can make it through this next year. But at least uh, I'm, I'm focusing some of my energy into writing, which is um, I haven't done for a while. So I'm really looking forward to that. And um, the past couple of years, I've spent a lot of time working on other projects. Um, I've, I've released three books in the last two, three years, actually. Um, and 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 I I have the good fortune to work with a great uh, media company in Florida called Truefire Truefire.com. And in, since 2018, we've done 10 courses. So I've been putting a lot of energy and time um, into developing those those books and and multimedia projects. Today's episode of High Action is brought to you by Henriksen Amplifiers. So we've used Henriksen now exclusively in the New West Guitar Group since about 2013. The amps are fantastic. They have a real natural sound to them. And if you're a guitar player who cares about the way that your archtop guitar just sounds uh, in of its own, it's a great amp to check out. They're also incredibly durable, really gig-worthy. We really dig them. They're very consistent, even, and they sound beautiful. So if you want more information on the Bud, the Blue, the Bud 10, the Blue 10, the Forte, or other products that Hendrickson makes, check them out online at www.henriksenamplifiers.com. John, great to see you, man. Uh, You too, man. It's a pleasure to get to chat with you a little bit and, of course, hear you. Uh, I've always really admired your playing. Your solo thing is just so deep, so happening, and I know how much time and energy goes into that. Uh, And so I, I really commend you for uh just being able to pull that stuff off it sounds so killing man well thank you i so appreciate it man you know in addition to being a fantastic guitar player i've also seen firsthand that you're a fantastic teacher as well and i just kind of wanted to see if you could talk a little bit about um sort of the ways in which teaching has also benefited your playing and the ways in which playing has also benefited your teaching you seem to approach it from a really organized standpoint um and I'm looking at some of these True Fire courses that you put out, and they look awesome. I would really recommend any guitar player check that out. Um, so have you developed some sort of method that you help communicate to students that you then also learn from yourself? Um, do you gain inspiration from students that you then take your own artistic career? T- talk a little bit about what you've learned as an as a educator at this point. Yeah, all, all great questions, and there's a lot of wonderful smaller questions folded into that larger question. I I think, you know, I've been doing this for a long time now, for many years. I mean, I started teaching informally in high school and people would just come over and take a lesson or whatever. I'd go over to their house and give them a lesson. And, you know, I think for me, it just comes down to, I really love the exchange of information, whether we're having a conversation like we're doing right now, or just a hang, which is really what teaching kind of used to be, right? If we're talking about the jazz tradition. Um, you know, playing on the bandstand, hanging after the the gig, all of that. Um, I just think for me, teaching is is sacred. You know, it's, it's just something I really love. Um, I love the interaction between teacher and student. And yeah, I'm always inspired. And and it's kind of like that old phrase. You know, if you 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 know you you teach something, you learn it twice. And and that's so true. And um, in terms of my methodologies. I don't really have anything specific. I mean, I, I sort of do, but it really all depends on um, the students that I get, you know, because everybody's coming with a different background and a different skill set and a different, um, you know, philosophy. So I think if I have any sort of, if I'm talking about like one-on-one uh, teaching, you know, at school with private lessons, I think what I, if there's anything I really try to foster is this self-awareness on many different levels with the students. So I try to, we try to foster self-awareness physically. That's one thing that I'm really interested in is, is um, health and wellness for musicians and guitarists specifically. So we'll look at their posture. Look, we'll talk about their hands. We'll talk about if they play with any excessive tension, um, any non-musical habits that they have. You know, what are they doing that could potentially hurt their hands away from the guitar? So that's that's something that I'm I'm um, fairly firm with is is them adopting a, a postural self-awareness and, and an overall awareness of their uh, physical uh, playing stature so that they can play comfortably for the rest of their lives, not just when they're in their 20s, but also when they're in their 60s. 
Um, and then I think, you know, um, psychologically or, or, you know, I think this is also intertwined with spiritually. I also try to have them develop a self-awareness of what it is they truly want to do with their guitar playing and their music. And, and this, this connects to what they might want to do professionally, you know, and over the years I've had many guitar players that want to become a jazz guitar player, many that don't. Um, and some don't even go on to be a, a guitarist professionally or a professional musician. And and for me, I think it's all good. You know, I think if there's, I've had a lot of bad teachers over the years too. <laughs> and and I, I always kind of told myself, you know, if I'm ever in a position where I'm teaching at a college or whatever, I'm not going to be like this. Meaning one of those people that has the, the philosophy of like, well, if you don't do what I do, or if you can't play my stuff, or if you can't like blow over 26.2 at 300 BPM or whatever then you're a failure. You're not worth even me talking to, you know, um, or like in the classical guitar tradition, these master classes where this teacher would like bring somebody to tears, you know, tell them that they're not even worth, they, they should even be a musician. I think that's terrible. And, you know, I kind of grew up in that old school, uh, thing, you know, and, um, and I hated seeing that. So, I, I definitely in, encourage students to do whatever they want. And, you know, I, I think even just this, this is now something that like with the recruiting aspect at college, for example, you talk to a lot of prospective students, uh, parents as well as students. And there's this stigma that we all face uh, as, as musicians that, well, if I'm going to go to school for music, is that even a worthwhile, you know, is that just a waste of time and money? And I emphatically, you know, try to encourage them that of course not, because even if you go on to study something else other than music, you know, that time that you spend as a music student and learning an instrument and the discipline that goes with that and the organization and that, you know, and the confidence that you have to build, all of those lessons are so deep that um, it's it's much more integral to the success of uh, any discipline than most other degrees. And I've had several students go on uh, to be very successful in other areas. I've had a couple of students actually go on to be medical doctors. Um, and I didn't, even I was surprised that you could do that with an under, <laughs> with an undergrad uh, degree in performance, but you can, you know. That's great. I mean, it's great to hear that perspective from you and that uh, some of your students have gone on to do different things. I think that that is actually very common in the jazz world. Um, I remember some of my teachers at USC, people like Shelley Berg and others who had been teaching for a long time, talked about the different careers that some of their jazz students had gone on uh, and gotten involved in. So, yeah, that's mm -hmm. very much a reality in this business, which is you know ultimately not for everybody. Uh, but just going back to teaching a little bit, um, one of the things that definitely unites the two of us is uh, the great time we had to got to spend individually studying with Joe Diorio. Um, mm. He is such an inspiration as a teacher. And sometimes I group teachers on the guitar in two different categories. Like some are very conceptual and uh, don't necessarily talk about the nuts and bolts of the music too much. And then others are very dogmatic and and have a you know very strict method of here's what you need to do step by step by step uh, mm -hmm. i would put joe in the uh previous category as a very conceptual teacher someone that didn't necessarily worry too much about your technique or whether you wanted to play with uh a bass player or a drummer or a horn player or a piano player he was all about the guitar mm -hmm. but there was an inspiration that he brought to every lesson that i think all his students felt and as a teacher, I've wondered how to, how to tap into that kind of inspiration and how to transfer that type of inspiration to other students. Is that something that you've realized about Joe and been able to transfer to other people as well? Because I feel like it's a unique quality that he has. Mm, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And you're right. He, he was so inspiring to be around. He's funny, so humble, um, so generous. His just an incredibly generous spirit. So musical, so creative. Um, and I would agree with you in his the, the, his teaching style being in the former. Of course, you know, at that point I was much older and I didn't, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd already put out a record and, and I was writing for acoustic guitar and stuff. So he didn't, I didn't need him to show me a C major seven chord. And I'm, I'm sure that, you know, in, in that situation, if he did need to do that, he would be excellent at that. A lot of times we would just talk about the aesthetics of music. We would always play. I mean, a lot of times we would just start a lesson just playing a tune. Sometimes he wouldn't even call it. He would just start playing, and then you just jump in, mm -hmm. and 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 then you know, and then um, and then we might just keep playing, or or you know, he might ask a question like, "Well, you know, what what'd you think?" You know, 
or uh, or did you ever notice that you know mm-hmm. <laughs> um and uh you know i remember one time a lot of times it was just counseling you know i would be feeling like bad about a certain style of my playing and he'd be like you know what don't worry about it you know it's like you you worry too much just just relax just play let it happen it, you know it'll all it will take care of itself and you know just just do your thing just keep doing your thing and i remember one time i was i was working on material that ended up i ended up recording um well, it ended up being the Indigo recording. And I actually recorded that at Pat Kelly's house. That was kind of my final project um, for my DMA ended up being that record. So I was working out some material for that. And one of the tunes I was working on was um, Confirmation, which was all like worked out because it's like Confirmation is hard enough to play just by itself. But then when you're doing a walking bass line and chords and stuff underneath that, I I spent a lot of time, I kind of treated that like a classical guitar etude. So I brought it in (laughs) to Joe and I was like, well, can I play this for you? He's like, yeah, let's hear it. And as I played it, and he goes, and and then so after I finished the head, I barely got through it because it's really hard to play. And then he goes, "Why'd you stop?" <laughs> like he was still expecting me to improvise, you know, in this thing that I'd spent months working out. Um, it was really funny. Yeah, he, he, and he was half serious. He was half joking. He was half serious. He was like, you know, he was always kind of pushing you to reach your potential, you know. And he'd say, "Well, why don't you do that? How about play it up?" you know, in a different key or things like that. And we talked a lot about sound that, and that's one of the things that stuck with me, um, that all of the different colors that you can get from a guitar. And I think of Joe as such a, such a great chamber guitarist, if that's, if that's it, you know, and what I mean by that is again, you know, the best times to hear him was just either solo or playing duo with somebody, um, because he played like a cellist or, or a great piano player and that he was very expressive. You know, he's got, he's playing this 175 and, and he's just so expressive, like treating it like a piano with all of the different tones and textures that he would get with his fingers and his pick and by getting a different vibe going and and um i remember being very inspired by that yeah there was something about him too as just a true conduit of the music you know especially at the age that we got to know him i mm. felt like when he was playing the music was just pouring out of him and mm-hmm. he was emoting all that and uh yeah it was very inspirational and you know one of the things he talked about that uh, you mentioned a little bit was he would say to me you know, for, this is for better or worse. He would say, um, "The best accompaniment for guitar is just guitar." <laughs> he would say, "Don't <laughs> around with you know saxophone and trumpet, <laughs> piano, whatever." It, I, at a young age, I had no idea what to think of that. But there is something about the guitar that gets um, some subtleties about the guitar that can get lost when you're playing with an ensemble. Uh, and a lot of those beautiful subtleties and dynamics can come out in your solo playing. Uh, mm-hmm. But it creates a new challenge to how you really cut and how you really fit in with a band. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think throughout your, your career you've made sort of conscious choices to focus more on the solo thing and now you want to try to go back into the band thing with this grant? Or have you just sort of felt that artistically you like those uh, more intimate types of groups, whether you're playing solo or duo? Both, definitely. I mean, also, you know, since I've been I've been playing fingerstyle for a long time, but I've been playing with a pick longer. And I I think in terms of my gigs, you know, I, I definitely play. Well, I mean, every time I play with a uh, a band, I play with a pick. So I, you know, um, that's a necessary evil, <laughs> I guess. Right. Um, you know, in terms of the aesthetics of the guitar, I absolutely agree. I mean, this you know, you can look back at the the times of of you know classical guitarists, and and it's always been a chamber instrument. It's always been a parlor instrument, solo instrument, and you know, guitarists in the classical genre have always wrestled with how do you play with a with an orchestra? I mean, even just playing with a violinist, the violinist is so much louder. Every other instrument is virtually so much louder than a guitar, than an acoustic guitar. And for I really developed the solo thing and, and an interest in that aesthetic for a number of reasons. One was um, kind of pragmatic, coming from Maine in the earlier years. There just weren't a whole lot of jazz musicians to play with. So there was that. There's certainly not a lot of bass players, or n- none, you know. And um, so... Um, and then I got I would get calls from singers, so I'm like, wow, I really need to put this t- stuff together to to work with this vocalist. You know, I need to learn how to do intros and and modulate and all of these things. But there was definitely a love of the aesthetic, and you're right. You know, there's a lot of the guitar that's lost um, when as soon as you play with a band, especially if you're getting into like funk stuff or loud drummers. And there's something about that that I really like. But what I don't like about it 
unless you're playing with a very sensitive rhythm section, which which is is key, I think, finding a really good drummer. Um, but I felt like sometimes you, I would be pushed into a certain way of playing. It's like, well, okay, all you can do now is play hard and fast. And that's just such a small sliver of, of what a guitar is capable of. And I, and I never, I, I never really liked being pushed into that. This is just me personally. And I would think about how other people dealt with it. In fact, I remember asking Mick Goodrick about this. He was talking about this gig that he did with Michael Brecker. And I was like, man, how do you do that? Like, how do you follow a Michael Brecker solo, you know? And I think over, over years, different guitar players have come up with different things. For example, you know, Wes would, would build that intensity, of course, starting with single notes and then going into octaves and then that incredible, his incredible rhythmic drive, of course. But then the, the block chords, that's how he could, t- same thing with Benson, he would kind of take it to that level. And Mike Stern would do it with like, you know, a distortion pedal. Like, that's how he would kind of keep up with, I mean, we can't blow like a horn you know the horn players start doing that thing when they're just like blowing and playing the harmonics and piano players have this huge range and it's that's like a monster of an instrument you know and so i've thought a lot about how guitar players have come up with different ways to keep up with the other members of the band so i think i i'm much more comfortable in a in kind of a chamber setting where we can play quietly uh and um you know i really admire the people that have have where i was able to deal with that on their own terms like jim hall comes to mind you know he could just play in any environment whether it was chamber the jimmy jufri stuff or you know just duo with bob brookmeyer or his ensemble stuff with sunny and, and art farmer and so I've paid a lot of attention to that, and I think everybody has to reckon with that. I don't know. What do you think about that? You play um, in a lot of different situations. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I think it's just different facets of your playing. Like, um, I love hearing you play solo guitar. I love hearing you play with a band. But I can tell when you're playing solo that there's so much more that you can bring out on the instrument technically, you know, through the finger style, through the counterpoint you're doing, through the harmony. Um, mm. with a band, you have to find ways to go in a different direction much further. You have to find ways to get your sound to cut in a smaller way, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I don't think it's about focusing so much on doing less, but just doing more in a different way, if that makes mm. sense. Uh, mm-hmm. But sometimes these are sort of two different roads that you can go down as a guitar player. Some guys are way more comfortable and prepared in a solo way, and some guys are way more comfortable and prepared with the band. So it, it can be uh, just sort of a challenge to negotiate technically because we often talk about the guitar really is a technical battle, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that you, yeah. uh, you've <laughs> demonstrated such mastery over that technique uh, for so long, Sean. So thanks for uh, sharing your wisdom here with us. I'm going to pass it over to Will here right now because I know he wants to get in there. Sean, it's good to see you, man. Man, you too. <clears throat> yeah, and I love um, I, I love that My Fair Lady album. I remember listening to that back in back in 2015, and um, I wanted to to get your insight into working towards and reaching that that plane of really interacting with yourself and blending with yourself, even if it's just with two line playing, right? With like bass versus melody. And then you add in the rhythmic aspect and then maybe add in a third voice like that is that's something that I just feel conceptually like maybe on piano, it can be a lot more straightforward. Whereas like Perry was saying, the technical aspect of reaching that on the guitar hmm. is hard. I mean, just from a technical standpoint, musicality aside, and just wanted to get your insight about things you do to really to reach that because I mean hearing your solo playing is captivating and then the sound and the dynamics and the the connectedness so I just wanted to dive into that a little bit yeah um definitely and man I've heard you I've I've heard I've just been watching your clips of things that you've been posting and and um and you're doing it I mean it's the, the last clip that you did was just amazing I was like man, trying, is that too good playing? <laughs> <laughs> well so, I mean it's I just right back at you. I mean, that's why I want to know your insight because I'm, I'm basically trying to get a free lesson here. So, okay. Well, (laughs) when I started listening to a lot of solo guitar players, I, I, what one thing that really struck me for me personally, between the great ones and the, the good, you know, the people that were kind of okay was the, was the swing feel, the feel, the rhythm and articulation, and really the sense that, that you feel like there are two different players. 
And the way to really achieve that, I think, most efficiently is to have differences of articulation with the fingers and also volume. Dynamics is really important. And again, like what I was just talking about with Perry, it's hard to get that level of dynamics, uh, not impossible, but it's harder to do that with um, like an organ trio, you know. Um, I have a rhythm section that I play with a lot in, in um, here, and the bass player and the drummer, they're so sensitive. They're very great. So they listen. So when I come down, they come down, which is really nice. But um, a lot of guitar players don't think about dynamics, quite frankly, mm-hmm. and they don't think about um, articulation. And for me, Tuck was, I learned that early on from Tuck. So here's what you can do technically. I do a lot of exercises and people that want to study like solo guitar with me, I have them do a lot of exercises that promote that. So for example, I have a ton of these, but one thing that you can do is, let's just say, for example, you have like a, a straight drop to C major seven chord, right? Mm-hmm. And third position. So one thing that you can do is, is um, get your fingers playing on that chord and make sure that every note is even in terms of, you know, how it sounds, the clarity of each note, the duration of each note, the volume of each note. And then what you can do is practice sustaining one of those notes at a time. So I think of those different strings as like a different voice. So to me, that's like soprano, alto, tenor, bass. So if you're playing that regular drop to C major seven, the first thing you want to do is sustain that E with your pinky, you know, and then so that's staying on there while the other guys are popping as staccato as possible, the other three notes. And you're not even leaving the strings. It's just a release of pressure and you're finding your touch um, with the left hand. And then do the same thing with the alto voice, which would be the B. And that generally is fingered with your middle finger, right? So then, you know, try this. Try try keeping the, the middle finger down while one, three, and four pop up. And then do the same thing with the G with your third finger. And then finally, you know, and another exercise that's really <laughs> nice is if you um is it okay to talk about like technical stuff like Please. Okay. I, I i took it there and i'm happy to be here with it yes this is another fun exercise for you to try try this at home um if you start off position and and just kind of like go five six seven eight um with fingers one two three four across the a up to the b string for example so in the middle strings just try um finger switching for example so this is so for example you've got the frets are five, six, seven, eight from the A up to the B string. And then the first thing that you're going to do is swap the first and middle fingers while you keep three and four down. And, and not only do you get the independence of switching those fingers, but you want to really go for the articulation. So the fingers that switch want to be super short and staccato like that, that, that mm. while three and four stay down and that's your legato voice and so you go through all the permutations and so for example the next one would be sw- swapping one and three and now you have to skip that d string and then you switch out one and four switch out two and three two and four and then finally three and four and and this this is really funny at first because you're like oh my gosh I, I can't do this like you know and and what it is is it's a different level of technique you know lots of people can play like arpeggios and scales and shred those things just because what we've that's how normally people practice and and doing this kind of independence is kind of like a different level so then if you take that to playing like walking bass and comping or whatever you want to have if you have a chord and then the bass you want to have the bass be sustained because it's generally a long note in, in jazz and then the chord pop uh staccato so if you think about if you play like a chord, like if you have like an A13 chord, for example, you've got a bass and then your fingers are playing the chord. You've got four different articulation types. You've got both long, which are the hand, fingers just pressed down on the strings, and then both parts short and staccato. So you're popping it and really developing this staccato sense. Then you have the bass being long and the chord being short. And then finally, you have the bass being short, which would be more of like a funk style if you want to get into that groove, and the chord being long. So if you practice those in time with a metronome, eventually they become intuitive. So what I found, another thing that I really enjoy about this style is that sometimes, you know, guitar players, or I I think any musicians, when they think about improvising, they're just think about um, melodic note choices. And really, to be musical, you want to also improvise with your articulation, your rhythmic vocabulary, your dynamics. Those are all different levels of improvisation. And I think, playing, for me anyway, playing fingerstyle and, and, and really spending a lot of time so that I can improvise the articulation makes it much more musical sounding. Uh, and, 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 and then finally, when you go to play a tune, if you imagine a singer or a horn player playing that melody, which I do, then you, you don't want to 
be constrained by the limits of your technique. You want to be able to have a note sustain if, if you need to while the other notes are. And, and so when you start doing that, you create the, the illusion of two different parts. Man, I love this insight so much, and I I really do need to check out check out your True Fire course because I love. I mean, I think we're all in the same boat. You know, we've been home a lot and probably shedding a lot more solo guitar than ever before. I know I certainly have. So I <laughs> yeah, I sure. love getting your insight. It's it's so cool. Um, also, I wanted to talk about your. I think it's your main guitar that you use by Luthier Tad Brown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just developing your relationship with with that instrument and I'm, I'm sure it must feel really good to play solo on that specific axe. Yeah. You know, I've had that guitar for a little over a year now and I, I feel like I'm still kind of learning how to play it, you know, getting used to it. Um, I love arch tops. I, I play different guitars, but I just have always had a real affinity mm-hmm. for a big, you know, a big guitar. Um, mm-hmm. but, but what, one of the things that's really f- refreshing about Tad's guitars is they're incredibly ergonomic. He is one of the few arch top builders, actually the only one that I know of that, that does the rounded bevels and the contour. So it's, it just fits right into your arms and, and against your body. And he is influenced, um, by um, a lot of uh, violin luthiers and, 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 and cellos, for example. So his, his instruments are very light. So it's a full-size 16-inch arch top, but they weigh five pounds or less. Mine is just under five pounds, which is ridiculous. It's awesome. And um, he has an interesting violin bridge and a violin ta- tailpiece. And it's a very, um, it's a very lively, it's a very live guitar, which is what I really like. I like guitars that sound um, lively and interact with a pickup in that way. I, I kind of like a brighter, not a bright sound, but um, like a, a, not a dark, yeah, clarity, exactly. Like a piano or a cello. And and I think that's a combination of what the luthiers do and, and then developing your touch with that instrument. I think about that a lot, especially when I listen to like Yo-Yo Ma. I mean, just like one note from that cello is beautiful or a beautiful singer. And, you know, we as guitar players, we can't do that because it's such an inherently percussive staccato instrument, you know. But we can really, uh, tape, you know, be influenced by their sensibilities and try to just get the best, most perfect sound you can, you know. And um, that's something that playing solo guitar forces you to do, like not having any strings ring open, like, for example, while you play, you know, like if you start improvising a single note, a lot of people will just, they're not, they're not even aware of it. The, like the open string will just kind of be ringing in the background, the open mm-hmm. E string or A or whatever, or they're sliding a lot and you hear all these strings squeaking and stuff. So it's, I've, I've spent a lot of time also thinking about the, the, the clarity of the instrument and how clean it is. And Tad's guitars really promote that in a nice way. They're really easy to play. And I don't want to fight with a guitar you know it's it's hard enough just dealing with it with the neck you know so i I really like to have a i don't have a real heavy touch i i don't like to have super high action or anything i just like to have a guitar that will will work with me instead of work against me one one more quick question before um before i i think we're gonna play another amazing tune of yours but um how does different venues and different volume levels, especially when you amplify, because solo guitar amplified at a loud volume changes the characteristic of of your sound and of the instrument. How do you deal with that? Mm, boy, that's the question. Right? Of the, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, it's, you have to deal with it. Amplification, man. It's like, gosh, you know, um, so... <laughs> I'll try to answer this as quickly as possible. Part yeah. of my journey as a guitar player, and this was also inspired by Tuck. Tuck Andrus was the first person, like when I when I started listening to him and meet, met him, he was the first guitar player that I ever met that didn't play with an amp, you know, and um, and it was just one of those things, you know. You read these you read these uh, you know interviews with Wes Montgomery or or like in that Wes book, his wife Serene would talk about. He Wes was always you know fighting with amplifiers, and she said he was burning through amplifiers. And I don't think that he really. I mean, he always had his sound but you know you guys know that sometimes um that sound was better on some records than others you know and i think he really found his sound when he switched to those standell amps Mm -hmm. and of course a lot of it this is another thing i just bring this up because i don't think a lot of guitar players
players think about this. A lot of it in terms of recordings is the recording engineer. You know, we've all heard our favorite guitar players on certain sessions where they just didn't sound as good as they would on other sessions, you know, and um, that's true of everybody. That has nothing to do with the guitar player's guitar or their style or their technique or anything. That's all on the recording engineer. And so that's just something that I've thought about a lot about. And I've noticed some of my favorite guitar players have spent a lot of time working on their sound live in person. So like, for example, when you see Bill Frizzell play live, it's incredible. It's just like listening. It has that same clarity and fullness and everything. Um, so f- for me, um, and Johnny Smith always d- battled with that. You know, he even had this amplifier called the Fountain of Sound amp that looked like a little coffee table and the speaker went straight up into the air. Ampeg made him for a little while. And the whole idea was that, you know, the sound would be dispersed evenly because Johnny wanted to sound, it wanted, he wanted it to sound perfect. And so for me, uh, I remember one time I had this nice vintage Fender amp and it sounded great and everything. I was playing this gig where there were a lot of different musicians playing, but you know, it just sounded like small. And then this acoustic singer songwriter guy came up after me and he just plugged his cheap acoustic into the PA system and it was like huge. And I thought, man, that's, that's what I want to sound like, you know, and that embarked a long journey in, in trying to like find the best optimal system from the guitar and then go into a PA. And so I would, I would lug PA systems around with me for years just to have that level of clarity. Fast forward to me moving to Colorado in 2007. And I, I hooked up with, I met Peter Henriksen and his, and his father, Bud Henriksen, and they had just started this amplifier company. Uh, they were called jazz amps at the time, but now they're just Henriksen amplifiers. And that was the first time that I played an amp that really had, was able to deliver the, the complexity and the clarity that I wanted from the guitar. And it's a lot of things going into the signal chain. Of course, that starts with you, the player. But, um, you know, that's, that's having the flexibility of those jazz amps has been great with the five band EQ and then just having a great sound flat. You don't want to mess around with your sound. It's like, you know, they talked about Grant Green. He always battled with those Fender. You know, he would just crank the mid all the way to 10 and turn the treble and bass all the way to zero. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's, you know, that's an interesting thing to try. Everybody's had to deal with the Fender twin, man. Yeah. (laughs) Oh yeah. Thank you for that insight. It's so, so we could go on and on and on. I'm going to, I'll pass it back to John, but so inspiring getting your insight on all that. Yeah. And, and, you know, actually let's, let's definitely play another little clip here. This is off of Sphere, your album you did in homage to Thelonious Monk. This is one of my favorite Monk tunes by Yah. stuff beautiful tone so deep. is that on your wow. brad nickerson guitar that's on the the nickerson guitar yeah all of um uh, so i've been playing uh, brad nickerson's guitars for many years and all of my recordings are with those the my fair lady i did with his solstice model um and um and that that the monk record was done with the virtuoso which i've had since 2003 got it so yeah i love both of those guitars so i i i it's you know you guys know too because you have relationships with luthiers um i know you guys both have a couple of marchione guitars and the and and jeff Trogut's guitars and it's it's a really special thing to 
to actually have a personal relationship and know the person that built your instrument, oh, yeah. I think, is a really wonderful thing. And I've been playing a lot of guitar shows for several years now, and it's I'm always um, humbled by um, the the dedication that they all these luthiers have to making instruments for and and i've learned a whole lot i mean there were things about the guitar that i had no idea of until i started hanging around with luthiers it's been really great for our listeners where's some places besides you you're on Bandcamp, of course that's a great place to purchase your recordings and and then your true fire classes where else can the listeners check out your stuff sean uh, you can always visit my website, which is seanmcgowanguitar.com, and that will give you links to everything, um, you know, all of my materials and recordings and things like that. Um, I've got some stuff on YouTube. I don't spend a lot of time um, creating YouTube videos. I probably should do more of that. But, um, yeah, start with my website. And... Um, uh, and then, of course, you know, my Facebook page. There's a Facebook page called Guitars and Coffee with Sean McGowan, if you want to look that up. And that we did 20 episodes. We did that for 20 weeks. And that was just basically it was a lot of fun. I think it helped keep people's spirits up um, when it was it's been really hard for people to get through this. And so I just wanted to have an hour each week where I reached out to people, played guitar, I would just improvise a bunch of solo stuff, drink some coffee and do a little lesson. So um, yeah, you could, that's that's all archived on Facebook. Well, it's been so fantastic to have you. And I, I have to ask you, we've been asking everybody, it's typically Will's question, but I'll go for it. How high is your action? On your guitar. How high do you like that action? <laughs> <laughs> um, just high enough. How's that? I couldn't give you an exact measurement. I have no technical knowledge, but um, just high enough, not too high. I don't know, medium? But what? I don't know what medium means, but um, that feels good to me. You've met the bar then, because you have to have a certain amount of ac- high action to be on the high action podcast, Sean. So you, you, you get in there. I can imagine as a solo guitar player, you can't have it be too high, but... Yeah, isn't it fair to say that your action is mile high? Oh, <laughs> mile high. Mile high. oh my gosh, man! It's so great having you, Sean, and connecting with you. And you know, we one of the first gigs with New West that we had um, that was got, got canceled in the pandemic was our trip out to Uray and our trip over to Denver. We had that planned, and we were bummed that that didn't go through this year. Hopefully when things open up in another year or two or whenever it is, we'll be headed back out that direction because we love bringing the New West Guitar Group out there and coming to visit you at the university out there. But we just, we just you're such a unique guitarist and it, we wanted to get you on here right away. So we're glad we ha- we've had you and we just appreciate you, Sean, for joining us here for High Action today. Well, I appreciate you having me on, and I just appreciate all the work that you guys are putting into doing this. I think this is a wonderful podcast, and I'm really looking forward to binging it uh, again over fall break. And uh, and you've just you ask such nice, thoughtful questions. So thank you for doing this. I know it's a lot of work. Thanks again for joining us for another exciting edition of High Action. We'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible, especially those who follow us on Patreon. If you'd like to join us, visit us at www.patreon.com slash newwestguitargroup. There you can subscribe monthly to our Patreon page and get exclusive content from today's podcast. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for all the future episodes. Once again, I'm John Story with New West Guitar Group, and thanks for joining us on High Action.